Hey, I want to also say good morning to all of you who are watching online and encourage you that uh, we are going to celebrate the bread and cup uh, later in the service. And you can take a moment to go maybe get a little bit of juice and some bread to share at home. And if you didn't get one of the little bags as you came in today, I won't be offended if you uh, run out and get one uh, and come back into the service. <clears throat> well, today we begin a new sermon series called Collision Course. When faith creates conflict, conflict is a daily reality, isn't it? If you hadn't noticed, uh, our media thrives on conflict because conflict sells. The odd thing is that we have other values in our culture. One of the high values of our culture is tolerance. And uh, what, what to tolerance in the postmodern worldview is about is erasing conflict but this is how they do it. This is what, what tolerance kind of uh, means today. Uh, they make truth a matter of subjective personal experience. Truth is a matter of personal subjective experience. And then you call all subjective personal experiences equally true. And that solves it. No more conflict. Until you steal my parking lot at Kroger's. And then all of a sudden, we have subjective personal experiences on a collision course. There will be tension. There will be conflict. It's not so easy to avoid conflict. In fact, Jesus doesn't avoid conflict. Jesus doesn't avoid conflict. Far from it. In fact, he tells his followers to expect it. Jesus, when he was being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, said this to Peter. You'll remember this. Put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. But this very same Jesus also said this. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus said that? Now, he's not talking about a literal sword. He's talking metaphorically about division conflict. At the birth of Jesus, the angels proclaim peace on earth, goodwill to men. We love to sing about that at Christmas time. But this same Jesus, when he grew up to be a man, said this, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. Well, how, how could the prince of peace the one who offers us peace that goes beyond understanding, how could he predict tension and conflict? What is up with that? We want to understand it. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to recognize that there's all kinds of conflict in the Gospels. We've been reading through the Gospel of Matthew, and it comes up a lot in Matthew. I mean, think about it. All you have to know is that Jesus ended up nailed to a cross, there is conflict in this story. When God took on flesh and blood, incarnated into space and time, two worlds were on a collision course. When Jesus began to call people to repentance, there was going to be a collision course with the stubborn human heart. 
when Jesus began his teaching ministry and calling men and women to follow him, he was on a collision course with the religious leaders of his day. When Jesus almost completely ignored the powers that be of his time, while calling people into the kingdom of God under his rulership, he was on a collision course with human power. When Jesus cast out demons, he was on a collision course with the prince, the spiritual prince of this world. So when Jesus calls us and invites us, invites you and invites me to follow him, he is also inviting us into conflict. So over the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at some of these conflict relationships, some of these sources of conflict and tension that come with faith, that come with following Jesus. Ask us, what, what are these conflicts? How should we understand them? And how should we respond? Not all conflict is the same. Some conflict should be avoided. It's not necessary. Some conflict is unavoidable. All conflict is painful. When Jesus talked about tension, conflict, and division, he said things like this. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Do you think he's making a point? <laughs> wow, he just keeps going on and on. Division, conflict, tension. What could divide people within families like that? Politics? Yes, but that's not what he's talking about. Different ideologies and worldviews? Yes, that can divide, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. Personality issues? Yeah, that can divide even within a family, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. Fans of different sports teams? That can create conflict in a family, but that's certainly not what Jesus is talking about. What is Jesus talking about? That would cause so much division. Well, the great divide is the question, who is Jesus? It's his identity. One can say that the identity of Jesus, what people believe about the identity of Jesus, is the single most divisive truth in the history of the world. You've heard of the Continental Divide. Check it out. Who's your pass? It's right here in Indiana. Did you know that? Come on. I'm just joking with you. Of course, we don't even have any mountains in Indiana. It's in Colorado. It's kind of the Rocky Mountains, right? But I thought that was interesting that there is a who's your pass in uh, the mountains. It's the Continental Divide. And if you understand the Continental Divide, you realize that that's, that's everything from that from one point east. Everything flows to the Atlantic River. All the water flows the Atlantic. And the other side, it all flows in the direction of the Pacific. It just, everything is divided one direction or the other direction. And Jesus is the great spiritual divide of all humanity. Every person has to confront the question, who is Jesus? Who is he? What's his identity? And a person's response to that, that this is the great divide. You either go in one direction or the other. There are only two options. He is the great divide. And of course, that means that this question, if, if the issue of his identity is the most divisive issue in the history of the world, then this question of his identity is the most 
important question in the history of the world, and Jesus asks his disciples this question in Matthew 16. So I invite you to take your Bibles, whether you have a print version or a digital version, and turn to Matthew chapter 16. You will find it on page 797 in those Bibles that are right in front of you there in your rows. Matthew chapter 16, starting with verse 13. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now what was Jesus doing in Caesarea Philippi? You and I, a couple thousand years afterwards, we read right over that place name and don't think anything about it. But for a a first century Jew, they would have stopped right there and said, what was Jesus doing in Caesarea Philippi of all places? Because in the first century, Caesarea Philippi was um, to Palestine what Las, uh, Las Vegas is to the United States, or Amsterdam is to Europe. It was a really big, bad, red light district, and no self-respecting Jew would find himself anywhere within 20 miles of it. Well, why is that? Let me explain a little bit about the location. In, in this context, the location is really important. So um, Caesarea Philippi was located at... Um, the, the, the base of Mount Hermon up in the north of Palestine. And the city uh, was at the f- foot of this large cliff, as you can see here. And the most prominent feature of this cliff was that large cave. So that large cave would have been there in Jesus' time as well. And in fact, there was a spring there and some water came out of the cave. And you can see other, you know, the water flowing down from Mount Hermon. And so water kind of symbolized life and fertility. And so the pagans, the Romans, the Greeks of that time, believed that the fertility gods and goddesses lived in that cave, prominent among them, the god Pan. You remember Pan? He's the goat-legged man. All right, so they, they believed that this was where Pan dwelt. And you can even see in the picture like this uh, carved-in arch there, and, and that's where statues devoted to Pan, the god Pan would have been. And so um, they had a whole complex of temples here, you'll see in the next slide, of, of temples built, and the one on the far left is there right by that opening to the cave. And they believed, they would go there and they would practice all kinds of licentious, perverted sexual acts in order to call forth the gods and goddesses of fertility to bless them and to bring crops and children or whatever, but, but it was a bad, gnarly kind of place. And in fact, they believed that uh, this, this cave led down to Hades, down to hell, guarded by the god Hades, and therefore it was referred to or known as the gates of Hades, right? The gates of hell. And so that's where, so what was Jesus doing there? Okay, what was he doing there? Well, he was about ready to go to Jerusalem for the last time. This is towards the end of his ministry. And he takes his disciples uh, a few miles north of Galilee where there were huge crowds that always followed him around, but they weren't going to follow him to Caesarea Philippi. Remember, they weren't going to get near to it. 
and, the, and the pagans who went to Caesarea Philippi didn't know about Jesus or care about Jesus. And so Caesarea Philippi was a place that he could be alone with his disciples to prepare them for what's coming next. And what was coming next is he was going to Jerusalem to die. And what was most important for them to understand is they went through, they had no idea. <laughs> Even though he told them many times, they never could grasp it. They were going to go through some hard times ahead. And the most important thing they needed to understand is who Jesus is. And he gives here kind of his final exam before the final act of his ministry. And so here we go. We'll start again at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Interesting. Now, do you think your average Jew would have seen John the Baptist and Elijah and Jeremiah and the prophets as good guys? Yeah, yeah, they were good guys. That was a, that was a you know, that, they were good, the good guys. So that's nice. Uh, when, they, when they lumped Jesus in with Elijah and Jeremiah and John the Baptist, they're, they're putting him in the group of guys they like. But it's not enough just to like Jesus. It's not enough just to like Jesus. Jesus was more than a prophet. Elijah and John the Baptist were seen as forerunners of the Messiah, pointing towards the Messiah. Jesus was more than a forerunner of the Messiah. He was the Messiah. Jeremiah was a prophet who warned of coming judgment, but also a prophet who promised that there would be a new covenant. Jesus wasn't just warning of coming judgment. He is the judge. He, he wasn't just pointing towards a new covenant. He was the basis of a new covenant for us in his body and blood, which we'll practice here um, later in the service. So he, he was much more. He, he didn't just come to point in the right direction. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But you know, um, today people still like Jesus. They like Jesus. I was at a conference up in Chicago earlier this week, and they, they gave us some stats, and uh, they demonstrated how um, the percentage of people in our country who view the church uh, with a certain level of respect, uh, either a great deal of respect or quite a lot of respect, has dropped dramatically. Just 20 years ago, 56% of our population had a high view of the church. They respected it. Today it's 36%. 36%. That's the bad news. The good news is we're still viewed more highly than Congress. <laughs> Labor unions, big business, public schools, the news media, banks, and big tech. <laughs> what you should notice is a trend of distrust towards institutions, period, okay? But what's interesting is that the percentage of people who still think highly of Jesus is quite high. View of the church, low. View of Jesus, still high. And that sounds nice, but what's happening when we just like Jesus? What's happening when we just like Jesus is that we are remaking him in our image. 
We like, we like to kind of use Jesus. Hey, what are ways that people kind of like Jesus and use Jesus in our culture? Well, there's the Jesus as the quotable moral authority. You know, he's, he's a great endorser of whatever cause we're into. We can always find a quote from Jesus to back us up. Awesome. What we use him when we need a little moral oomph uh, behind whatever our cause, our project is. There's Jesus as the ever-loving affirmer of whatever I feel. He's the one who gets us. He gets us. He understands us. There's Jesus as the great vending machine in the sky, the, the eternal Santa who's always there when I need him, which is when I need something from him. There's Jesus as a wise counselor. Of course, he is a wise counselor, isn't he? Jesus as the wise counselor whose advice I follow selectively when it's convenient. There's Jesus um, as that relative that we have that we really like, but we're just a little embarrassed of them. So when our friends are over, we just hope he stays in the room away from us. Or there's the Jesus that's like the rich aunt from whom we, we're probably going to get some inheritance. And though, although we like her, but she's kind of awkward, we got to keep up a good relationship because we're hoping for that inheritance. See, all of those fall far short of the reality of who Jesus is. It's liking Jesus, but we're remaking him in our image for our purposes. We're kind of using Jesus in, in that way. It's not enough to just like Jesus. That's just making him into our own image. We're forcing Jesus to submit to our sensibilities, our priorities, our understanding of the good life. That's not, okay, that's, he asked them, who do people say that I am? Nice answers, but not right answers, not good enough. And then he asked them, verse 15, but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I, will, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the what? The gates of Hades will not overcome it. Of course, there's been an ongoing uh, uh, controversy. Talk about conflict. There's an ongoing conflict between uh, one branch of the church and another over what that word rock is referring to. Is it referring to Peter, or is it referring to Peter's confession? Well, certainly, as they're about to head into what they're going to head into, uh, what was necessary to be able to withstand the evil in the world, what was stronger than the evil in the world, a community of people devoted to Jesus Christ that is stronger than the evil in the world, that's going to be based in the truth of who Jesus is, his identity. So Peter gives an exalted view of Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. That means the anointed one. That means he's the king over God's promised kingdom. And he is deity. He is God himself. When he says you're the son of the living God, you are in essence God. You are the God-man. You are Savior, Lord, and the source of all life. Over the past uh, couple 
of years, I've heard this phrase a lot, the right side of history. Being on the, we need to be on the right side of history on all kinds of issues that we faced. It seems like this last two years have been a constant barrage of new issues and challenges, and uh, I hear people talk about being on the right side of history uh, on these issues, whether it's uh, social and racial justice, more recently gun violence, sexual abuse, uh, competing ideologies that are tearing our nation and different institutions apart. Um, we need to speak with prophetic courage into these issues. The voice of the church, of the word of God, of Jesus, needs to be heard in these issues. I w again, I was up in Chicago, and one person who spoke to us, a group of pastors up there, was a man named Sky Jathani, and he told us something. He said, your silence, pointing to us pastors, your silence about these issues hurts young people more than any stance you could take. You're always supposed to take one thing away with you from a conference. That was it. Your silence on these issues is more hurtful than any stance that you could take. Well, that, that's, that's motivated me to say, hey, we, we need to have the courage to speak prophetically into the things that are going on in our world. However, all the great interpretation of scripture and application to our world means nothing. It's just a bunch of hot air if we first don't believe the truth about who Jesus is. Because only when we submit to the truth of Jesus Christ as Lord will we go to him in faith, pursue him to find what he says about our world and what's going on in our world, and then submit to it and follow it rather than the culture's view or our feelings. And so this question is still the primary question. Who is Jesus? Because being on the right side of history begins with a right view of Jesus. That's where we start. Jesus was about to go to Jerusalem for the last time where he would be arrested, tortured, tried, and killed. And that all happened for one reason. He was convicted on blasphemy because he claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God, just as Peter had professed. It's that confession that took him to the cross it got him killed. It was, there was a lot of conflict. He knew it would get him killed, but he refused to lie about his identity in order to save his life. So when it was put to him in his trial, who, are you the Messiah? He answered positively in the strongest terms. He stated the truth of his identity and he accepted the consequences of it. One Little lie would have saved him, but only the truth would have saved us. And so he stuck by the truth of his identity. In doing that, he lost his life, only to resurrect and to, and to give us the hope of life. And so I believe that that calls us to do what the author of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 13, 13, 
Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. Identify with him in his identity as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the only Savior, Lord, and source of real, lasting, eternal life. And with that comes conflict. Jesus was willing to endure death on a cross. Can, can we go to him and affiliate and join him in the truth of his identity in a world that may like Jesus but doesn't honor him as Lord? Can we honor him as Lord? Here's the charis commitment to common identity. That's kind of the statement of faith of our uh, fellowship of churches. This, and, it, and it has th- four parts. And the first part is called the center. This is the center of everything that we are and believe. And it's stated this way. We declare that Jesus Christ, the incarnate word of God, as revealed in the Bible, the written word of God, is the only Savior and Lord. He is the center of our shared experience of true biblical unity. Kind of the irony of this is that those who believe the truth of the identity of Jesus have unity but it creates conflict with the world. All of this leads to a great decision. We had the great divide, who, who is Jesus, but it leads to a great decision. Will I follow? Will I follow? Everyone who was ever born and lived on this planet was on a collision course with the truth of who Jesus is. Eventually, and we sang it, we sang it already today, eventually every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Eventually, everyone will answer that question correctly. But the important thing is to do it now. To do it now. In this life, this is our opportunity to not only proclaim that Jesus is Lord, but to follow him in faith as Lord So the the question even now as we are going to take the bread and the cup, as we do that, to ask our hearts, do I just like Jesus and therefore remake him in my image? Or do I believe in the Jesus that the Father has revealed through the life of Christ, through his word, as the Savior, the Lord, and the source of all real, lasting, and eternal life? And in believing that, am I willing to submit my life and follow in obedience? Who do you say that Jesus is? We're going to take the bread and cup if you have your little baggie there. Take that, please. So in this context of Matthew chapter 16 after Jesus has established clearly his identity with his followers, then he calls them now to discipleship. He goes, well, they've been his followers for three years almost. Yes, but now, now, now that it's clear in their hearts and mind who Jesus is, he calls them to discipleship, to follow him. And we read later down in, starting with verse 24 of Matthew 16, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. 
For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me, because of my identity, because of the truth of who I am, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. And that begins with, what do you believe about the Son? Jesus called his disciples then, and he calls us, his followers now, to glad surrender to him as Savior and Lord. We know who Jesus is. We, we know what he's done for us on the cross and through his resurrection. And as we take the bread and the cup, remembering that he gave his life for us, let's take this moment to recommit in our hearts to following him as Messiah, the anointed one, the soon returning king over the eternal kingdom of God. He is very God, God himself, our Lord. Let's commit in our hearts again as we take the bread and the cup to obeying him with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Just take a moment before we begin of silent prayer in your heart to talk to Jesus. If you're like me, you couldn't help but pray the words to that song. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. And so he gave us a very tangible way of reminding us of our love for him and gratitude and thankfulness to him. So if you'll take the bread. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's say together out loud what is written there in bold, and then we'll take the bread. The bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. Take the cup and carefully open it. In 
the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's say together this phrase and then take the cup. The cup of blessing which we bless is the communion of the blood of Christ. Christ. 